This is the third in the Don't Pivot Swivel podcasts, interloping on the Pedagodzilla feed. This isn't with Diane. This is with a friend of mine called Pete Hartley. And Pete and I were asked to do a presentation to fill in for the absence of a Solstice 2020 conference. We go to that every year and this year because of lockdown. It hasn't taken place. So we did a narrated PowerPoint presentation for uploading on the site. And in the process of doing that, we created a longer audio file. So this is a podcast made from the longer audio file. It's taken a slightly different approach in that we're pretending we're looking back on 2020 from the perspective of 2045, which uh, was Peter's idea, and I think it works. So hopefully you enjoy it, and uh, here we go with the podcast. Welcome students and faculty from our 43 worldwide collocation centres. Uh, in this part of the course, we're investigating the post-pandemic changes across UK higher education in the early 2020s. This week, we'll look at the immediate responses to the lockdown and the online pivot, as they described it in those days. And I'm delighted to welcome an expert on this period, Emeritus Plus Professor Mark Childs from the slightly ajar university. Professor Childs, I believe you unearthed some important archive materials after overcoming the difficulties posed by the obviously obsolete technology from the days. So where would you like to start? Thanks, Peter. Yeah, it's been some really interesting stuff that I've I've discovered going through old sort of online servers and things like that that I managed to boot up. And I think probably the best place to start, because a lot of our listeners won't have been alive in 2020 is to maybe give them some kind of context for what was going on at the time. So 2020 was the uh, first of the global pandemics of the 21st century. And uh, if you think of what life was like before then, people could go out whenever they liked. They didn't need hazmat suits. They weren't tested for body heat when they left the house, all those sorts of things. So we were pretty much free to walk around as much as we pleased. So when the first pandemic hit, People were stuck at home for the first time. And one of the things that caused a huge amount of problems for people was education, because up until that point, the vast majority of education happened in physical locations, shared physical locations. One of the things I found going through all of these uh, old documents was that for a lot of people, the move to being completely online and having complete remote education was new to them, totally new to them. But My memory of the early 21st century was that actually we'd been doing online learning for quite a long time. So while you're here, this is one of the issues I wanted to explore with you was, why do you think my experience and probably your experience of online learning up until 2020 seems to have been so different from the vast majority of people who seem to be talking about it this time? Well, it depends uh, what you mean by online remote learning, really. I mean, I think if you look back to the years before 2020, then there was a very definite sense that teaching was done in a physical location. It was done in in buildings. Um, and this was the gold standard and had been so for, for quite a long time. So before 2020, there was online and remote learning, but it was very much a, a small part of the university's activities. It tended to be done by specialist groups on specialist courses. There was online learning through the virtual learning environments, which had now become almost standard practice by 2020. But then again, these VLEs were not necessarily used to their capacity. Uh, From the very first days of the VLE, there was the discussion about 
were they more than a repository? Uh, and people were still complaining in early 2020 that people were either not using the full facilities of the VLE or simply using it as a repository. There was the the false hype around MOOCs <laughs> aim just in a few years previous where some people were arguing that MOOCs were the future. And that never quite happened for all sorts of reasons. And a large part of it was this image that education, higher education, was about a physical activity that you participated in. And also, very crucially, until the years before 2020, we simply did not have the technology. We had bits of it, but it didn't all fit together. So the idea that everybody could use Zoom, for example, a very popular conferencing system around 2020, that would not have been the case in 2019. The fact that everybody was forced to use the technology, uh, that the technology existed, uh, which enabled most students to to participate and engage. And so the, the 2020 was a really critical point in the university's history. So I, that's interesting because obviously I must have been working in a sort of echo chamber where everybody I knew was also working online. And so everybody I knew also saw it as a big thing and a, a regular part of their work. And yet I wasn't mixing with the people that weren't doing that because they weren't part of the people I was working with. So most of the documents I looked at were on Twitter. So again, younger listeners won't know what Twitter was, but it's basically, it was an online platform that seemed to be mainly designed for people to get into pointless arguments with random strangers. And so looking at some of these pointless arguments with random strangers, when people had to move online, they weren't necessarily um, experienced with it, but they weren't going out and looking for any previous experience as if it was new to them so therefore it must be new to everybody and yet these are people whose normal job is to do research before they start to implement their courses because they're if they're i don't know geographers they would research geography but moving to online education they didn't do the same sort of due diligence on how to teach online do you have any theories as to why that might be well i think there are, there are a number of points there that create that situation. One is the, the structure of universities themselves, whereby people were locked away in departments, schools, faculties, whatever the label is. People like learning technologists, education technologists tended to be locked away and, and often were, were part of the structure of keeping the systems going rather than the educational help. There's also the teaching versus research conflict in terms of priorities and in terms of uh, what the institution favoured, either implicitly or explicitly. So the whole sorts of uh, issues there, which meant that people did not automatically search out for the help that they that they could have got, and that was one of the big issues, I think, of the of the move towards online learning in the twenty twenty, because people often fell into a trap that you often see with innovations, where innovations aim to replicate what has gone previously. I don't know whether you, we have an image of a, the very first generation of railway carriage. Uh, and if you look at that, you will find that it looks very much like a stagecoach. So the new technology is, is interpreted in terms of what people know already. Uh, and so there was a big debate around 2020 about synchronous versus asynchronous learning and whether popping lectures on Zoom was the way forward. Um, and of course, that realization that that wasn't necessarily a good way to go took some time to 
to be recognised by some institutions. So when somebody's teaching geology, they recognise the geology as a specialism, but not the teaching part, so they just go ahead and do it. And so therefore, when they move to online teaching, they just go ahead and do online teaching without realising that's a specialism too. Therefore, you just do what you were going to do face-to-face and you do it online. Is there anything else you wanted to say on that before I, I moved on to looking at some specific examples of what we were calling at the time bad takes? Well, it was just uh, interesting. There was one very famous uh, research work. Uh, I can't remember the exact date now, which is way back in uh, the early uh, 2000 or perhaps even in the previous century, uh, talking about academic tribes and territories uh, and how the structure of the university was very much based upon the tribes based on subject discipline um, and how the tribes did not talk to one another. Uh, and another manifestation of that was that educational research was often a very poor cousin to what people considered to be real research. And so all these dynamics about where people were, who they talked to, uh, who they recognised as experts and who they could go to for support, they all combined to create this panic, the panic of the summer of 2020. Ah, okay. That explains a lot of the, a lot of the things that I was, I've been coming across. Okay, so here's the first extract of something that astounded me when I went back through it. And this is from an article by a think tank. So think tanks were something back in the 2020s, which were a sort of basically groups of self-appointed experts who managed to get some influence over policy and the government at the time, mainly because they probably went to the same school as them. And I've got one of the quotes here from the document I found. And People could look at the whole thing, but the thing I wanted to bring out was this phrase which said at the end, we urgently need more evidence of the impact of synchronous online learning on outcomes. Now, again, it's difficult casting the mind back 25 years, but wasn't there plenty of um, evidence of synchronous component and the importance of synchronous interaction when learning online? Can you remember? I'm sure there was. I think one of the interesting things that you will see in the literature of the time, including the quote that you've just shown us, is that people are asking questions about online learning um, and taking for granted that they know the answers when you apply it to the traditional face-to-face learning. So there's a notion that online learning must be something strange that that cannot possibly have the uh, impact of the face-to-face encounter. Now, I don't want to minimize the impact of face-to-face encounters in in our everyday teaching, because they obviously have been very important, and we need to work ways of, in some sense, mitigating the the problems if if you remove that in some way. However, I think there's now a lot of evidence, and there was a lot of evidence at the time, that said that if people engaged in discussion boards, if people engaged in online exchange, then they could come out with some really terrific results, both from the point of view of the staff delivering and the student satisfaction and the student performance. But unfortunately, there were a whole lot of ideas about the time, around 2020, that really weren't helping people progress. I think later on in that very in that article, you talk about the idea that quote students are digital natives already skilled in online communication. Um, and again, that there's all sorts of myths kicking around at the time that will actually prevent it. I think people from seeing from taking a more open-minded view of what they could do uh, with the with the technology that was now available to them. 
Well, I think we always get that. We always have something about the new generation is somehow remarkably different from previous ones, and those so therefore have a certain set of elements, factors to them, which you need some education guru to help you through when you come up with a snazzy name for them. So, for instance, the last few years we've had the quarantines because obviously there was a huge bulge in the population nine months after the pandemic, and it's what is their experience? How is that different from all the generations that have gone before? And how do we then um, react to that? And and it's often just a way to sell consultancy, as far as I can see, and it's still happening. Um, yeah, so digital natives was something that went on then. Um, as you said, there's another quote, and we'll, we'll put it here. Um, we will always need teachers face-to-face in small groups, and maybe that's not true either. I think one of the things that did come out at the time was that what school children and younger university undergraduates were facing when they moved to an online environment wasn't so much that they were missing out on education. They were missing out on the chance to form peer relationships that the online experience couldn't replicate. So, for instance, school children, you make friends because you go to school with them. You you see your friends because you go to school with them. You'll miss your friends because you're not going to school with them. And I still my one of my closest friends is somebody who was the first person I met when I went to university. And we still didn't find a way to replicate that experience online to the same extent. Can happen, but it doesn't happen as effectively and for everybody. And I think that was the thing that emerged was if we are going to be teaching online schools and universities, we need to find different ways for younger people learners to replicate those sorts of experiences. Although there was one really bad take I remember seeing, which was, I think, from one of the newspapers, and again, students can look at what a newspaper was, is that you needed to go to, he needed to have gone to university because that was the only way he met his posh friends. And it was only because he had posh friends at university that he got on in his career. And luckily, that's something we've been able to do away with over the last quarter century, because that sort of need for nepotism in order to get anywhere is thankfully a thing of the past now just another thing in there i think you've uh, you've hit another very obvious historical trend which is that uh, in the early part of the well later 19th uh, late 20th century and early 21st century uh, the mass media became more and more interested in higher education because of the number of students that were now going through the doors and there was a lot of very negative press in the mass media, across the mass media, directed at universities. You had all the various uh, kickings that we received about grade inflation, about Mickey Mouse degrees, about uh, mental health and well-being crisis, about vice-chancellor's pay, uh, essay mills, a whole sequence of stories that were effectively painting university experience in a rather negative light. That seemed to change a bit in about 2020, and you got much more interest in how students were going to respond to whatever the new normal was, and that was a phrase of the time, whatever the new normal was going to be, and whether students were going to cope with it, whether they were going to benefit from it. And also a number of universities taking the opportunity to build a much more positive image of themselves through the media and through various contributions to uh, both pandemic activities and post-pandemic activities. So there was an interesting possible shift in perceptions of the universities and in terms of how they were then portrayed or reinforced through the media. Initially, there was this panic about students not coming 
back to university uh, while they waited to see what was going to happen. Uh, but then there was the number of voices who were saying, well, okay, well, what if students take a year gap, what are they going to do in that year? Uh, because there won't be the number of part-time jobs. So let's let's just go and make, make the best of it because life will gradually return to something recognisably normal, to, to use the words that were used at the time. And also another thing revealed by all of the comments that I've looked at is the lack of understanding of what education is from a lot of those newspapers. At the time, Cambridge took the route of, they used to have this thing called lectures, which is basically one person standing at the front of a huge room full of students just talking for 50 minutes. On the whole, that was what the model was. And they decided to replace that quite pointless exercise with a recording of that teacher talking for 50 minutes and then put that online. And what the the newspapers were saying was Cambridge is moving its teaching online. And the number of tweets I found from academics who were working at Cambridge at the time who said, well, no, we're only moving our lectures online, and that only represents 30% of our teaching. And so for people who hadn't been through the education process that recently, for them in their heads, teaching was still lecturing, and they completely were unaware of all the different variations that teaching can have, like tutorials, seminars about activity-based learning, all those sorts of things. And it seemed like there also not only was there a mismatch between people's awareness of online learning, but actually about how pedagogy had evolved since they were at university. And I, most of the universities I'd worked at, and they were about, by 2020, I think it was about 10. Obviously, there's a couple of dozen since. Very few of those had lectures as the sole means of teaching their students. Is that your perception as well of the time, was that there seemed to be a complete obliviousness to what university education was from a lot of the mass media and people working outside of university higher education? I think that's 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 true, and I think that again that was reinforced by some newspaper headlines which looked at the costs. Why should students pay the fees when they're not getting the education that they they've they've signed up for? And ignoring the fact that in terms of tutor input, uh, they were getting a, a considerable amount of effort put in in terms of preparation of stuff online. There was online interaction, and so there was that misunderstanding, which I think is now changed quite a bit in the in the subsequent years, largely because, of course, in 2020, not only were the universities suddenly pushed online, but so were schools, both primary and secondary. And it's interesting to talk to people who were children at that time and how they became accustomed to being at home, receiving the materials, uh, again, posted online. Uh, and having to submit materials online and hopefully getting some really positive feedback for, from their teachers. And many young children actually took to that very well. But again, that, of course, then started you thinking about the inequalities in society and in terms of people's different experience and students' different experience. It's a very different experience if you're stuck in a back bedroom in a high-rise flat uh, with limited internet access. It's a very different experience of being taught online as opposed to the houses which you've got nice, quiet space where you've got quality Wi-Fi. And, of course, that was one of the good things that came out of that transition to online was 
that inequality, that inequity was suddenly right in people's faces that some children couldn't get education at all because they had no laptop, um, because their household had no internet access. And there were parents successfully suing their local education authorities for not providing their children with laptops because that meant they weren't getting an, getting an education. And the authority was responsible for their children's education and it was therefore failing them. And of course, then we got everybody had access and it became more or less 100% within a few years after the pandemic. So, so yeah, so we did see some changes happening as a result. Shall we move on to assessment now and about how assessment changed during that period? Is there anything you wanted to say specifically before I brought out one or two of the things I found from looking at the documents of the period? Well, the obvious and immediate impact was on examinations and the traditional examination where you herded possibly hundreds of people into the one room and uh, supervised them and invigilated them disappeared overnight. Uh, And that meant an incredible amount of effort from academics, from administrators, from technologists to produce assessments which in some sense, compensated for the absence of an exam. And of course, one long-lasting impact of that was that people suddenly thought, well, is this examination in this particular format really necessary? Is it the best way of testing people? So institutions did a variety of things. In some cases, they decided that they'd assessed people enough already and could allow people to progress or what have you on the basis of what they'd already done. Other places instituted different forms of examination, open books, uh, extended period of time, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things I think uh, we saw in the subsequent years was that the gradual change from the old traditional examination to new forms of testing, new forms of examination. There was also some negative sides where, and particularly uh, we, I noticed this in some literature that came out of the United States, uh, the idea of proctoring, the idea of keeping tabs on students as they did an exam at home under, uh, if you like, formal examination conditions. And again, there's a question of equality and access there, all sorts of issues there. But there's some very interesting accounts of how examiners tried to, in a sense, replicate the old way using the new technology. Well, in fact, um, going through the documents uh, at the time, the worst example I found was in Australia, where students from different Australian universities had to download software onto their laptop or computer, which then monitored not only whether or not they were clicking out from the test that they were receiving, but also monitoring their eye line to make sure they weren't looking around their bedrooms. The proctor would insist on being shown round the bedroom in order to make sure that they weren't cheating, that they hadn't got things on the wall. And then they had to give things like their, you know, full location, full name. The the, the sort of safeguarding in, involved in this is is absolutely minimal. And the invasion of privacy and the duress that students were put under during this whole process was was appalling, particularly since this then was mainly a test of memory, as far as I remember exams. I mean, we haven't had exams for, I think the last one was the mid-30s, where apart from a few historical reenactment societies doing them, but the whole idea that you would have to memorize information, that as a skill died out in the previous century, and yet we were still asking learners to memorize whole bulk of material and then replicate it and then penalizing them if they looked stuff up. Before I move on, there was another 
There was another document I found again on Twitter, which was of a a teacher who had deliberately put an impossible to answer question in one of his exams so that the students would have to look it up and then he could catch them out for cheating because they'd gone to one of these like essay mill type websites. What do you think the rationale was behind this proctoring, behind this checking out teach the students for cheating and really behind the whole process of getting students to memorize stuff in the first place? Why do you think it was still around even you know, decades after it became, it ceased to become a useful talent. Well, I think there are there are several ways we could talk probably all for the rest of the day about that. I think there's it goes back to the notion of there was very much a a gold standard of education, which uh, implied that it was all down to individual effort, and as it say, testing under very time constrained conditions was seen as the as the the fairest way of assessing somebody's competence. Uh, And this had grown up. There's an irony is that uh, people introduced examinations going back in history uh, because the number of students became uh, too large for them to continue with the old practices, which were effectively vivas. So as soon as you get a lot of students, you can no longer give them all viva. So you have to give them a, uh, put them in a room and, and test them all at once. So there was a lot to do with that idea of the gold standard of assessment just carrying on. And then when all this uh, the pandemic erupted, people were simply trying, it's back to that idea of replication, is that when a new situation comes along, people reinterpret it in the ways that, of the past. Um, and I think there was, there was that. And also one of the interesting things that I picked up looking at some of those old documents was teachers' attitudes, tutors' attitudes to students. And there was a, a deep schism in some of the discussions between staff who were saying, well, we have to assume that our students are possibly going through a very rough time at the moment, and we, we compensate them as much as we can, as opposed to the tutor from the example that you've just highlighted there, who is effectively treating students as basically dishonest and who will take every opportunity to uh, to cheat the system. Um, and there was a real, in some of the debates that I read, there was a real schism between staff who were prepared to take students positively on face value and stu- and staff who were actually looking at them from the point of view of this student is, is going to cheat and I'm going to catch them. We're seeing all of these different schisms, all these different ways that education went as a response to the pandemic that comes out of Obviously, it's only being surfaced through the documents we can find, and this is possibly only the tip of the iceberg. Oh, and again, our students are going to have to look at what an iceberg is. But it drew out all of these differences in the way that people approached learning, teaching, assessment, and really what education was about and what students were about. The difference between the the different attitudes for assessment is it's in a resource-limited environment. There are only so many jobs and so, therefore, there's competition for jobs, and the way you judge different people's competency for a job is the grades they got for their exams, and so, therefore, you have to grade students in order to be able to limit their opportunities to make sure that it's easier longer term for employers to select one student from many, even though perhaps grading on an exam, on a memory test, is not the best way to do it. Hmm. So we had all these economic reasons why there were these anachronisms in the educational systems and maybe the pandemic just highlighted what some of these were. I think that's uh, perhaps an important point but I think perhaps uh, as a final point we should perhaps highlight 
the things that came out of the those early 2020s, which really set the pattern for, for the future. Because next week, we have the session planned where we look at what happened after 2021 and how things have change from 2021 through to our present day and for that session we should be reverting back to our our normal brain synchronous technology um, and leaving this old technology which we've tried to demonstrate to you today uh, behind Um, and the sort of things that I was thinking of there was it did appear that the the universities who came out of that crisis uh, who were most successful were the ones who did perhaps uh, take a, a more positive attitude to the to the challenges and issues that were being faced and didn't simply try and replicate or revisit revisit the past. They were looking for, for new ways of doing things and looking for opportunities and taking students along with them in terms of explaining what they were doing, why they were doing it, lots of consultation, lots of persuasion as well in terms of persuading students that this was the 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 best way to go. And of course, another interesting thing that came very much out of 2020, I think, was the increased collaboration, uh, both within an institution and course teams and what have you, and also across the sector. Lots of people offering help, free conferences, free online sessions, etc., which had not happened in the years building up to that. And I also think we haven't talked much about students' perceptions themselves. But I think there was a very strong focus in the subsequent years about how students were coping with this new environment. And particularly the kind of, as you alluded to earlier, the social side of university life, which is critically important um, and which we somehow needed to reinvent and replace as a consequence of the of the pandemic. I think that, that sums everything up. Yes, we there were um, revealed anachronisms in the um, in the educational system, like assessment and um, the fact that a lot of the online skills hadn't permeated through to the sector as a whole. Some responded by carrying on uh, without those sorts of reflections, and some could carry on because they were already taking those into account. The online universities did quite well out of the process and in between you'd got the ones that adjusted and learned from previous experience and took that step back and really rethought what is our purpose and let's try and achieve that rather than let's just try and do what we've been doing up to this point. And I think there's there's another perhaps point on which we should end which is as we look back and particularly on the summer of 2020 we must pay tribute to the enormous effort that uh, university staff put in uh, way beyond the call of duty uh, to make sure that students were getting the best deal possible out of a very, very difficult and very, dare I say, unprecedented, word was rather overused in those days, uh, but an unprecedented situation. So we look forward to talking next week about what happened post-21. Professor Mark Charles, thank you very much. And thank you, Professor Peter Hartley.